Hello and welcome to the Iowa Hospital Association's podcast, Getting to Know Iowa Hospital Leaders. My name is Joa Hogan. The following is part one of an interview I had with Kevin Kincaid of Knoxville Hospital and Clinics. Part two will be followed up later on this month. Kevin Kincaid joined Knoxville Hospital and Clinics in August 2011 as the Chief Executive Officer. He has over 30 years of experience working in hospitals both large and small and is active on the state and federal level in healthcare advocacy efforts. Kevin holds a master's degree in healthcare administration and is a fellow through the American College of Healthcare Executives and is the 2024 chair of the IHA Board of Officers and Trustees. Kevin is also an adjunct professor for the University of Iowa's Executive Master of Health Administration program. Kevin is a veteran of the United States Navy and is married with two children. Well, good morning, Kevin. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, looking forward to it. Can you share your journey from a young person to your current role as CEO of Knoxville Hospital and Clinics? Yeah, that's always a bit of an interesting story, I think. Um, I've just recently become a little more comfortable in sharing it because actually it's the kind of path that you definitely wouldn't want your kids to take. So I was a mediocre high school student, and probably mediocre is, is being a little generous. Really didn't think a lot about grades and studying. I was had a good time and was very active in sports. When I went off to college in Kirksville, Missouri, you know, that's where the train went off the rails big time. But I certainly had a lot of fun. Had a, I was always down for a lot of good times, and I lived in a uh, house with a bunch of other folks that had the same worldview I did, and none of us made it through, and we all got those uh, letters that said, you're no longer needed at the university. You need to come find find something else to do. So I'd been kicked out of college. And so was the house, it was like a fraternity, or no, just a like-minded group of Yeah, just a big old house that (laughs) probably should have been condemned. (laughs) Got it. And, uh, yeah, a bunch of degenerates, and (laughs) and we really uh, were not doing anything productive, that is for sure. Except for there was one guy in the house who happened to be, the house was located very closely to the osteopathic college and the osteopathic hospital there on osteopathy in Kirksville, Missouri. I don't know why, but he just kind of became a bit of a buddy, and he didn't participate in our shenanigans, of course. But when he found out that I had been kicked out of college, he was the one that came up, got me, and said, hey, we need to get on a different path here. Uh, He was a fourth-year medical student at the time, and he literally took me down to the Navy recruiting office. He was in the Naval Reserves himself, and he said, I think this is a good choice for you. So without putting much thought into it at all, I ended up in the U.S. Navy with no plans, no, no idea what I was going to do. Then when I met with uh, the recruiting folks that kind of sign up, where are you going, what are you doing, they told me that, uh, um, hey, we have an opening for you on submarines. Wow. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. That was never any kind of plan, of course, but it really worked out well for me. So I went into the Navy as a sonar tech. So I was a sonar technician on uh, nuclear submarines. My first submarine was out of Scotland. And then I was transferred after two years to a fast attack submarine out of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. So that was a major change. Those are two completely different kinds of submarines and do different things. Their missions are completely different. And so when I got to the fast attack submarine, I had a couple of more senior folks that 
really, I don't know why, took an interest in what I was going to do with my life. I was still down for having a good time and really only thought about till the end of the week or the next payday. I really wasn't doing any planning. And one of them introduced the idea that, hey, there's probably not a great civilian career as a submarine sonar tech, so why don't you think about health care? And I was like, why, why health care? Well, I just think you would be good at that. So they talked to me and actually got me into to cross rate over into hospital corpsman. So I became a hospital corpsman. I left the submarine force, well, went to Balboa Naval Hospital, was working in hematology, oncology of all places. And when you show up from the fleet, it's two things happened for me. I, that was my first hospital that I ever got to work at, which was the largest military hospital in the world. Okay. And, and where is that located? And that is in San Diego, California. Okay, got it. Yep. So when I got there, a couple of things. First, it's my first experience in a hospital. So a lot of things are happening. So I'm working in hematology, oncology, and it was the first time that I realized people of my age can get sick and die. So that was kind of a life-changing kind of thing as it related to how I viewed things and my future. Also, when you come from the fleet, so very few hospital corpsmen ever went out into what they would call the real Navy at sea. So I show up with pins and ribbons and awards and things from being at sea. And so they immediately put me in charge. So it was kind of the first time that I had ever been in charge of anything, like responsible for people coming to work on time and doing all the right things. So they put me in charge. Probably the most, the biggest event that happened in that was I run across Captain George Lucan, who is a renowned oncologist. And He's an Iowa farm boy, and so he did his undergrad at the University of Iowa. He went to medical school at the University of Iowa. And so him and I connected right off the bat, and he had a beautiful place on Mission Beach. He had nice cars, and he had just nice stuff, and kind of was interested in, well, how did you do this? You grew up on a farm not that much different than how I grew up. How, how are you doing so well? And, and this is where I... Now I'm 23, 24 years old, and it dawns on me through Dr. Lucan that, hey, oh, by the way, you have to work for things. You actually have to study. You actually have to put forth some effort. And I was like, oh, I, I thought you just got this stuff. Sure. <laughs> I, I just didn't think about that from that perspective. And so he, he said, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I'm not sure what I, I want to do, you know, moving forward, uh, but I'll just figure it out after my enlistment's up. And, and he was like, I'm not. That's not acceptable. Where I'm not going to turn you loose and let you just figure it out. I think you need more direction than that. Within about a month of my enlistment ending, he uh, basically said, hey, here's what I want you to do. I think you should be an x-ray tech. So I've got it all set up for you. I want you to go to the University of Iowa. You're going to meet Marilyn Holland. Wow. He'll want you to meet on this date. And, you know, he had it all set up for me to enter the x-ray program at the University of Iowa. He took it so far as I was like, well, I don't, I, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't even have a place to live. And he's like, I've taken care of that as well. Oh my so ended up at the University of Iowa, went into the radiology program, and that is where kind of I've first started, hey, actually, if you can study, you can get A's on these tests. And then 
once I started getting A's, I was like, hey, I like getting A's, and, <laughs> and I like being at the top of the class. And so that just became my new thing. I used to be C's are good enough, and sure. now I was like anything less than an A is unacceptable. So it just kind of life-changing over that time. And so when I finished up the radiology program, I worked uh, part-time at the University of Iowa, and I also took a full-time job at uh, Mercy Hospital in Iowa City. So they've obviously went through a lot, going through a lot of changes, and it's been interesting watching them over the years. But so I just kept going to school, just kept going to school. And then I had an opportunity to go to the Grinnell Regional Medical Center as their director of radiology, very young. Many of the uh, x-ray techs had been x-ray techs before I was born. So I was a young leader, and they were so gracious because my only exposure to leadership was military. And you can get by with, I want you to do X, Y, or Z because I told you to do X, Y, or Z. That's just not how things work, and it's not an effective way to lead. So that group really let me learn and make mistakes, and, and I just kind of grew as a leader. And then I went back to graduate school at Des Moines University and got an MHA. And the senior team at Grinnell Regional Medical Center at the time did a lot of things for me. They let me take over other departments and learn how they operated. I got to be heavily involved in construction projects uh, from start to finish. I did physician recruiting. I did strategic planning. I did all those things. And once I had my graduate degree, then I had an opportunity. Lori Connor gave me an opportunity to go to the Dallas County Hospital as their chief operating officer. So that's that first C-suite step, and she opened that opportunity up for me. And uh, I was there for about two years. Then so happened uh, the Knoxville Hospital and Clinics, which is my hometown, That was never part of the plan to return to my hometown, but an opportunity opened up, and I just thought, you know, that could be kind of interesting. And they had just joined the Mercy Network at the time, so I knew some people involved in that, and so reached out and said, hey, what about me taking that job? And the people at Mercy One, or Mercy at the time, were like, yeah, you know, that hospital's got a lot of issues. A lot of things are happening. There was... uh, financial issues, physician stability issues, cultural issues. There are a lot of things that were happening. We don't think that that's uh, probably a great place for you to start, but I thought, well, I'm going to try anyway. Well, I really connected with the board. Boy, the board took a big chance on somebody unproven like myself and gave me that first CEO opportunity, and I've been there for 12 years now. So it's just been uh, a great match for myself, my family, and it's just really worked out. Uh, hopefully through that little Reader's Digest version of how I got there, it was when I was at the very lowest of the low. had no idea what I was doing, been kicked out of college, you know, parents are disappointed in you, you feel down and out. It was somebody in healthcare that got me pointed in another direction. And then it was somebody in healthcare that changed that direction a little bit, but still in a positive motion. And then I met somebody in healthcare that changed my life. And then I have always had somebody in healthcare helping me out. To say that I've had a blessed slash lucky path is uh, an understatement. 
Wow. Yeah, and you could have went a different path easily. Probably. Oh, very easily. Yes, yes. Very easily. So are you still in touch with those folks that interacted with you at your, your low times, or are you still in touch with them today? Yeah, so interestingly enough, a lot of those people, that was before any kind of social media or Facebook or any of that sort of stuff where it's a little easier to track people. Dr. Lucan, who said I um, happened to be on a flight with him out of Texas, and so... Him and I were able to catch up. He and said, how many years later was that? Oh, that was uh, about 10 years, 15 okay. years. So a good chunk of time. So he had retired from the military and then had moved to Coronado Island and was continuing to do great things in oncology. And he was pretty excited that I didn't uh, ruin everything that he had invested yeah, wow. into me. So uh, that it was great to catch up. So we've somewhat stayed in touch. And then, of course, with the once I landed in Iowa... All of these healthcare leaders across the state um, that mean so much to me, I I talk to them, see them regularly, and they know who they are. Is there's a whole bunch of them that have really helped me out, and so my big thing is that whenever I get an opportunity or if I if I do, I've got a lot to pay forward. You know, oh, I've right. got a lot to pay forward. Always interested in how I might be able to help somebody in a way that I was helped. Excellent. And what about the gentleman that lived in the house that took you to the Navy recruiter? Have you touched base with him? He went on to be a naval officer and is a physician out east somewhere. And do you touch base with him? On occasion. On occasion. So, again, the magic of Facebook. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Wow. That's quite the journey. And I like that where you got the blend of the military service background leadership and then with that Grinnell, then you got a different type of leadership that you could take the two, you know, moving forward. Yeah, Absolutely. And thank you for your service, first of all. Could you, can you share any experiences you had serving in the military, like in the submarine or any, any scary moments, any stories you can share? Some of the things that were the most exciting, many of those still to this day I can't talk about. Okay. Um, you know, wow. the things about just where we would go and not supposed to be there, uh, where how deep we would go, how fast we would go, places in the world. But one of the things when I first arrived on the submarine one of the first things that that I that I was just amazed about is and it's much like hospitals that entire boat was chucked full of accomplished people highly accomplished naval academy grads MIT grads nuclear engineers very very accomplished people and so here I am college dropout well kicked out wish I could say <laughs> drop out of college kicked out and then I show up on this on this submarine at uh, and surrounded by amazing people. So it's kind of hard to be a dirt ball when you're surrounded by okay, such good yeah. good people. And so I mean, wildly smart. I mean, the smartest oh. people I've ever been around. And so that that really helped out. But I I do remember one of the things that that I remember learning is that when we untied and left the pier and went out and submerged we were now the fifth most powerful country in the world all by ourselves the the wow. nuclear power of the weapons that were on board and just the sheer destructive power that we were packing around with you know somebody like myself and a bunch of other <laughs> young men yeah that was a 
pretty eye-opening experience that we're not playing tiddlywinks. Here. Yeah, yeah, a lot this of responsibility. This is serious business, sure. and we're out there doing a lot because uh, there was a time when I'm thinking and learning about all my friends still back in college going on spring break and going on all these amazing things, you know, doing wow. good things in college, and I'm sitting underneath the ocean several hundred feet. But I feel like I contributed in you know in a way that a lot of people weren't given an opportunity and so even though I kind of tripped into it I'm I'm pretty proud that I gave up my 20s to serve our country. So how many crew were in the submarine total? Yeah so the ballistic missile submarine we would go out to sea with uh, around 250 people and but that's a much bigger ship and okay. then when we went to or when I went to the fast attack out of Hawaii that's a smaller crew but it depended on what your operational mission was okay on how many people that you would bring on board so typically we might leave with 150 160 people on board and we would go to Japan and pick up our intelligence folks if that's what we were okay. going to do wow. and we may pick up anywhere from 20 to plus and then depending on what our orders were to do there were times that the mission changed so we picked up all these people to do a specific thing then all of a sudden something happens in the world or we find something more of a higher priority and then we might find ourselves up underneath the north pole and the ice cap so you've got 20 30 people on board for months on end nothing to do it was kind of a a, a really unpredictable life, for sure. You you didn't know what you were going to run into and do, and I really appreciated, I never thought about it at the time, but the guys that were married with families, you know, no communications, no telling them, hey, I, uh, we're going to go in, to Australia, that's where we're going to end up, and no, we're not in Australia, we're up under the ice cap. Uh, for them to be able to have families and family support like that, I, you know, just a single guy, just myself. Sure. Um, and I think about what they did, and I never really appreciated, but those military families put out a lot for our country. Absolutely. One last question, just curious on the submarine. So how how long can you stay submerged? Theoretically, you know, with resources yeah. and, and yeah. All that. So uh, that's a, that's a great question. So the very first time that I went submerged in a submarine, we didn't come to the surface for 110 days. Really? So that's a pretty long time. Yes. To be underwater. How submarines operate? You essentially have unlimited fuel. They're all nuclear power. Okay. We don't have any diesel submarines anymore. Got so it. Uh, fuel is unlimited. We make our own oxygen. We make our own water. The only limiting factor is food. Okay. So when you run out of food, and we were running out of food at that time, but um, we have uh, on a couple of occasions, the one mentioning being up under the ice cap where we didn't expect to be was we also were running out of food. When you go out to sea, you're trying to account for that. So literally, you can think of those narrow hallways that might be in a submarine, just everything. Those are lined with cans of food. So you're literally, when you first take off, you're literally walking all over the food. Every nook and cranny is chock full of food because in case we have to stay out, you don't want to run out of food. So. That's what happened. So you're submerged for that long, but and again, maybe watch too many movies. Is there points where 
you're you're out in the middle of nowhere in the ocean and you'll come to the top where the the folks can come out and just get some fresh air and things or no that's not part of it extremely rare to do that and first off that would be depending on where you are in the world you know a lot of times it's if you were to lose somebody overboard not only is now your mission screwed but got it um, submarines don't operate very well on the surface it's like a round they roll and so if the waters are calm and it's warm, I mean, we've surfaced off of Maui and let people go swimming. I okay. Mean, so wow. you've probably seen maybe pictures of that, but that's extremely rare. Got Usually it. you're staying, um, you're staying wow. on board, but occasionally we had a mechanical problem and had to come off station, the uh, North Pacific, and we were we had been out for a long time, so we had to open the hatch to get inside the sail to fix a hydraulic line for a periscope. And that fresh air, that was one of the times that I really remembered how stale the air was getting inside it, you know, because when you open that up, you can just feel and smell that fresh air pouring in. Those are uh, really memorable moments of, you know, you've been gone for so long and you haven't seen anything further than maybe 20 feet for months. And then when you open that hatch and are able to get up topside, it's a kind of a magical moment, really. What does the crew do just to entertain themselves or not to go crazy? And Yeah, you know, well, I'm sure, days? you know, things are a lot more to do now with electronics sure. and gaming. I know that uh, when I talk to folks that are in now, like obviously Xboxes and uh, Playstations. Okay, right, are yeah, <laughs> right, right. But uh, literally, we watched a lot of movies. Okay. And we ended up watching them all again. You know, we didn't have iPads sure. and things where you could download movies and things like that. But we also had a little, a very small, but uh, ship's library. I brought a lot of books with me because submarine life is boredom for days on end and then complete chaos. Okay. And then boredom. And then so I read a lot. And then I also, during all this time, I was still taking, I was always taking classes. My official transcripts are very difficult to put together because mm-hmm. I've got credits from colleges all over. But I used to collect up all the materials I would need. They had uh, specific courses for people like myself that were deployed. They would give you all the course materials to do while I was at sea and then turn it all in when we got back in. And We would occasionally, it's a radio wire, we would float it to the surface and it kind of lays on the surface and then we could get radio traffic. And on occasion we called them family grams. And so you could get a quick note. They were, your family was given like only so many words they could use, but they couldn't use things like, you know, we're going to go on vacation in July. Will you be back? You know, you can't do that sort of thing or no bad news. You know, if there was anything that your family put in there, you know, your grandmother passed away, they're not going to give you that. So, but it was always nice to hear from back home or grab some news. They would maybe uh, randomly grab some news from your area and then just tell you about it. I'm sure it's much more robust now on what they're able to communicate with. Yeah. Do you think they have access to email and things in the subs now? Yeah, except through the wire, I'm sure that they do. But again, operational secrecy is uh, so crucial that I, I would imagine that they're very, very tight-knit about what you might be able to wow. send out. and Because yes, it's yes. just so simple to make some reference to maybe where you're at or yeah, make, yeah. you know, um, 
you know, I got a sunburn. Well, you're not in the North Pacific got or the it. North Atlantic wow. or whatever. So uh, a lot of uh, um, things like that can uh, cause some problem. Well, again, thank you for your service. And yeah, and everybody, and like you said, that's a good call with the families at home. Yeah, I think that was probably the toughest job. And, and I, again, one of my biggest regrets is that I wasn't able to ever appreciate that really. Mm. You know, when I seen the uh, wives with small children at the pier when we returned from a six-month deployment and just, you know, not understanding how big that moment is. This concludes part one of my conversation with Kevin Kincaid, CEO of Knoxville Hospital and Clinics. Please tune in to part two where we discuss Kevin's hobbies, how the Knoxville Raceway affects the hospital, what his expectations are for overseeing the IHA Board of Trustees in 2024, and more. Thank you for listening.